Chapter Five of Lancashire by Francis Archibald Bruton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Lancashire in the time of Leland. In the preceding chapter, we have, so to speak, seen Lancashire emerge. We are concerned here not so much with tracing its history in detail as with noting those points in its story which touch more or less intimately the present centres of population. Naturally, also, as we see the county today questions suggest themselves as to how these centres of population arose. There are, moreover, picturesque historical incidents which will always be connected with particular places or buildings. This is especially true from, say, the beginning of the 16th century onwards. The story of medieval Lancashire is one of strife and fierce rivalry between feudal barons, of much lawlessness, violence and bloodshed, of many military musters for war at home and abroad, of Scottish raids from the north, of poverty and privation among the peasantry, of ravages of the plague to which even the first Duke of Lancaster himself fell a victim. With these stormy days we are not here concerned, nor is it our purpose to follow the Lancashire barons as they win distinction on the battlefields of France. We are concerned, rather, with the evolution of the Lancashire that we know. Representatives of many of the great families who figured in those troubled times are still with us but the feudalism that they once typified is dead out of these earlier struggles emerged slowly but surely the sturdy race that has given its character to the county we do not often go out of our way to express gratitude to king john it is nevertheless true that he conferred a signal benefit upon lancashire apparently neither celt saxon dane nor norman have been shrewd enough to see the tremendous possibilities that lay around a little creek at the mouth of the Mersey, of which the earliest extant name is Leopold. The place is not even named in Doomsday Book. It was King John who first saw its merits, and in order to induce people to settle there, gave it all the privileges of a free borough. The silence of Doomsday about a particular place is not necessarily an indication that it was of no importance. The Doomsday Survey concerned itself with the manners that could be expected to supply geld. Still, if we wish to watch the development of centres of population in a district, the actual places named are worthy of consideration, and in this connection it may be interesting to note, just as examples, that in the whole hundred of Salford, the only places named in the survey of 1086 are Manchester, Radcliffe and Rochdale, that in the great industrial hundred as we know it of Blackburn, Doomsday only mentions Blackburn, Wally, Huncote, Waltonley Dale, and Great Pendleton. Of these, four have developed to great industrial centres. Two, Wally and Walton, have other associations. Only two, Huncote and Pendleton, remain undistinguished. As we are mentioning some of the legends of Lancashire as we proceed, rather than devoting a separate chapter to them, we may halt here for a moment to give Radcliffe its due. All that remains now of Radcliffe Hall is the ruined tower that stood on its eastern side. It was probably built in 1403. When I saw it last, it was used for storing farm produce. With this tower, with no evidence to support it, so far as I know, is always associated the most gruesome of all the Lancashire legends. The story of Fair Ellen of Radcliffe is the Lady Isabella's tragedy of Percy's relics. It tells how the beautiful maiden her father's only joy, but the object of the fierce jealousy of her stepmother, was, at the instigation of the latter, 
murdered and served up in a pie to her father in spite of the protests of the scullion boy who cried oh save her life good master cook and make your pies of me it is with a kind of mournful satisfaction that we read that the cruel stepmother was burnt at the stake the master cook condemned to stand in boiling lead and the scullion boy made the heir of all the land especially as there is nothing in the pedigree of the radcliffs of radcliffe to justify one of these statements and careful search does not seem ever to have revealed the reputed bloodstains on the kitchen floor apparently as the ancient greeks had a legend that atreus killed the two sons of thyestes and served them up to him at a banquet at mycenae it was necessary that a similar story should be included among the legends of lancashire to return the honour of lancaster was conferred in the year twelve sixty seven upon edmund younger son of henry the third and here we see the commencement of the great house of lancaster which was to give birth later to a line of kings through the marriage of one of its daughters with john of gaunt son of edward the third barons of lancashire of course sat in the great council but the first record we have of lancashire members of the lower house is in the model parliament of twelve ninety five and the distribution of their seats will give us some idea as to what towns were prominent at that time they were then elected by the county court two members for the county two for lancaster two for preston two for wigan and two for liverpool manchester had not then even obtained her charter and for some strange reason she was not recognized as a borough till eighteen thirty two the representation just mentioned soon fell into abeyance a century later the population of the county does not seem to have reached twenty five thousand no battles in the wars of the roses took place in lancashire but a well-established tradition shows us Henry the Sixth, a fugitive in the Ribble Valley during that period. After the Battle of Hexham in 1464, he is represented as hiding in a wood called Clitherwood, beside bungalow hipping stones. Hipping stones, I presume, will be hopping stones or stepping stones, and Henry, being surprised at Waddington Hall, which lies back from the river on the Yorkshire side of the Ribble, crossed into Lancashire by the stepping stones, where Brungerley Bridge now stands, but was arrested almost immediately and taken to London on horseback, with his feet tied to the stirrups. Rymer tells us that his captor was suitably rewarded by Edward IV for his great and laborious diligence in taking our great traitor and rebel Henry, lately called Henry the Sixth. Such was the fate of the last of the Lancastrian kings in the county whose name he bore. Less than a quarter of a century later, we find the Earl of Lincoln and Martin Swartz landing with German and Irish mercenaries on Peel Island between Walney and the mainland to champion the cause of Lambert Simnel as a claimant for the throne, and afterwards encamping with him on Swarthmoor near Ulverston, where George Fox was to encamp with quite another aim in view more than a 150 years later. The great Norman keep on Peel Island, the ruins of which may still be seen, though the sea is undermining it now, was at that time part of the defences of the Abbey of Furness. But times had changed since the abbot of Furness rode out to meet Robert Bruce. The abbots had ceased to participate in political matters. Indeed, it seems to have been just about this time that the Pope's bull against insurrection was ordered to be read in the Abbey. At the last battle of the Wars of the Roses, the battered crown that fell from the head of Richard of York was placed on the head of the Lancastrian Henry Tudor, by a representative of the Stanley family, who was not remarkable for his political stability. 
he held aloof from richard's forces at bosworth and became in consequence the first earl of derby his marriage with king henry the seventh's mother the pious and beautiful lady margaret beaufort not only brought her and her good works to latham house which was then the residence of the stanleys but brought the county into close relations with the court so that the newly created lord derby became godfather to the heir apparent and ten years later when the new king was firmly seated on his throne lancashire was favoured with the pageant of a royal progress on the occasion of a visit from henry to his mother another quarter of a century passes and the men of lancashire including as the old ballad says fellows fierce from furness fells were mustering for service against the scottish king lancashire men fought on both wings at flodden on one side led by lord howard they were outnumbered and never abode stroke but fled for fortune on the right with fickle smile cheered scotland's fight then fell that spotless banner white lord howard's lion fell quite otherwise fared the lancashire men on the other wing led by sir edward stanley fifth son of the earl of derby for on the left unseen the while stanley broke lennox and argyle and when later scott's hero lay on the ground mortally wounded and painfully raising himself stared wildly around his last thought england's it was to lancashire men that he turned as his one hope for his country let stanley charge with spur of fire with chester charge and lancashire full upon scotland's central host or victory and england's lost among the lancashire men at flodden was sir richard Asherton with his company for middleton hall near manchester a residence which forms the subject of one of ainsworth's detailed descriptions in the third book of the lancashire witches unfortunately the flodden banner so carefully preserved to-day between sheets of glass in middleton church has proved to be of eighteenth-century date but middleton boasts nevertheless a flodden window which ranks among the three best specimens of medieval glass in lancashire the others being in mr cheetham's judgment at ashton-under-lyne and at cartmel the flodden window now much mutilated represented originally sir richard asherton and his lady in scarlet in long garments with an attendant squire in blue his chaplain also in blue kneeling before an altar and seventeen bowmen also in blue with long hair and the name of each man originally placed over each figure concerning which men a poem dated rather more than a century later says that people tell that on the same lands now their children dwell as yet so called thus middleton men of to-day draw lustre from their gallant forefathers as their forefathers won lustre at flodden less than another quarter of a century passes and lancashire men are mustering once more three thousand assembled from the furnace fells alone in the rising known as the pilgrimage of grace it is again a derby the third earl of that name to whom the king looks to keep the county loyal and derby led a force of eight thousand to preston his cousin lord monteagle also taking command the monks of Furness, Wally and Sawley, just over the Yorkshire border, were implicated, and the rebels, first at Hawkshead and then at Clitheroe, as Lord Derby reports, assembled them together, and with force then unknown to me, suddenly took the Abbey of Wally. It is this precise moment that is seized by Harrison Ainsworth for the opening scene of his Lancashire witches. No doubt the beacons on Lancashire hills have blazed out many times, and one writer after another 
has found it convenient to fire them ainsworth lights them for the pilgrimage of grace macaulay for the armada halliwell sutcliffe for the forty-five in the first case as the novel opens there were eight watchers by the beacon on pendle hill and as the night advances the signals flare up on blackstone edge above the gorge of cliviger on Eyton hill on bolesworth over paddiham above trawden forest on longridge at ribchester on wolf crag on bowland and so away towards lancaster while to the east they flash by Fowlridge and cowley hill and on to skipton it is a graphic picture easy to realise as we stand on pendle to-day and not less graphic is ainsworth's description of the sudden disillusion of the rebels look around exclaims the abbot thirty fires are in sight before an hour five hundred men will be gathered before the gates of wally true replied demdike but they will not own the earl of poverty for their leader what leader will they own then the earl of derby replied demdike he is on his way thither with lord monteagle from preston the insurrection was soon over but the little boys at the free grammar school at manchester as had just been founded by a certain bishop oldham a protege of the pious lady margaret at latham house must have seen some gruesome sights for under the direction of the earl of derby the rebels were brought to trial and there were gibbets erected at manchester at wally and at lancaster the abbots of sawley and wally paying the last penalty with the rest and the abbots of furness only escaping by the most disgraceful temporising it cannot have been more than two or three years after this at the most that king henry the eighth's antiquary leland made his itinerary through our county entering it from cheshire by a great bridge of timber called crossford bridge and passing on by many a stately hall to manchester which he finds to be the fairest best builded quickest and most populous town of all lancastershire having salford as a suburb and he learns that wild boars bulls and falcons bred in time past at blakeley hard by we have already quoted his words about chat moss from there he turns northwards sweeping round bolton to chorley and preston seeing just as we see to-day as we speed by in the train a line of hills on the right that still continued on the same hand till i came to lancaster that is angles ark and longridge and then the outliers of the forests of bleasdale and bowland you can understand how these beautiful hills would impress themselves upon one making his way slowly up the western plain on horseback fording the rivers and keeping his eyes open to every smallest detail of landscape and town referring to one of these hills he says commonly the people thereabout calleth it rivenpike they call it rivington pike to-day between manchester and the moss he sees enclosed ground partly pasturable partly fruitful of corn and much pleasure of orchards up towards the hills be three forests of deer wyredale bowland and bleasdale they be partly woody partly heathy beyond wharton the country is very hilly and marvellous rocky very noticeable in all these ancient itineraries is the careful reference to the rivers we rush across rivers to-day in trains or motors and hardly note them at all but in leland's time it was necessary not only to find fords but to ascertain whether they were practicable at particular states of the flood hence he is very careful to note bridges where they occur those for example at manchester and the great stone bridge of ribble having a five great arches 
this last is the old bridge at waltonley dale just south of preston across which cromwell chased the scots a century later it was leland's special business to note antiquities and curiosities of ecclesiology hence we find him telling of the augustinian priory at burscough near ormskirk the central piers of which are standing an isolated ruin to-day of the cistercian abbey of cockersand on morecambe bay standing very bleakly an object to all winds as we find it even now if we visit its beautiful early english chapter house which still remains quite perfect a place of black monks by latham which seems to be the benedictine priory at up holland the ruins of which are also yet to be seen priories of black canons at cartmel and conishead wally abbey and furness abbey up in the mountains which is hardly a correct description of its position and seems to indicate that he never actually visited furness he may have been deterred by the difficult crossing of the sands but we know that he afterwards examined the coucher book of the abbey when it had been forwarded to london he is particular in noting the parish churches as he passes each liverpool by the way has only a chapel and the dykes and foundations and other relics of roman forts at manchester at lancaster and at overborough castles or ruins of castles he finds at greenhalgh hornby gleaston liverpool and bury liverpool is a good haven where small custom is paid so that irish merchants are encouraged to come there bringing yarn for the manchester weavers there is mention too of the making of cottons at bolton the cottons of those days of course did not contain cotton of iron working at horwich also of iron sometimes made about bury now by lack of wood the blow-shops decay there at preston he notes that the market-place of the town is fair it is fairer still to-day flanked as it is by its beautiful town hall sir gilbert scott's conception its harris institute and sessions house and it is interesting to find that this was the feature that struck leland then on the other hand the ribble goeth round about a great piece of the ground about town yet it toucheth not the town itself by space of about half a mile which means that in leland's time preston was a little town clustering round the market square and the church and if we measure to-day we find that leland's estimate of their distance from the river was almost exactly correct the space is filled up now one other interesting point he finds that the ribble divides the diocese of chester from that of york it is the ribble once more so that preston is in the diocese of york while its suburb penwortham is in the diocese of chester and this perhaps gives us a limiting date for his visit for in fifteen forty one henry the eighth brought the two divisions except furness and cartmel into the diocese of chester and so they remained till the see of manchester was created in eighteen forty seven and that of liverpool in eighteen eighty the land found cannel and coal pits in west derby at bolton they burned some cannel but more sea coal of the which the pits be not far off they burned turf also sea coal was merely so called because it was first brought from newcastle to london by sea nor does his observant eye miss the quarry at manchester is it the one at ardwick or collyhurst just as he has much to say about the salt works he has seen in cheshire wigan quite holds its own the residents there being some merchants some artificers some farmers which seems to be a most desirable and convenient combination wigan moreover is paved as indeed it is to-day and is as big as warrington and better builded though he grants that warrington is of pretty bigness 
finally taking us to the northern confines of the county about the borders of westmorlandshire and lancastershire be many dales and in every one of them a brook giving its name to the dale how true and even to this day the men of the district are called dalesmen so leaving us in his quaint language and quainter spelling this welcome living picture of lancashire as his keenly observant eye saw it at the time of the reformation king henry the eighth's serious-faced antiquary mounts his palfrey fords the river kent passes on to kendal and we see him no more yet think of it for a moment leland rode through lancashire at the time that the suppression of the monasteries was actually taking place buildings that to us are mere ruins and of whose history and meaning we may have only a vague idea leland had known when the hum of monastic life was heard in them to him they were the abodes of actual men whom he had met in 1533 king henry had given him special authority to search the libraries of the monasteries and colleges for valuable manuscripts and he had undertaken the task with his accustomed zeal he had actually asked for cromwell's assistance in the matter being himself a protestant and a supporter of henry's ecclesiastical policy thus in lancashire that being the district we are considering here the benedictine priories of penwortham and lytham and up holland the single little cluniac cell at kersal in salford the cistercian houses at furness wyersdale and wally the augustinian priories at conishead cartmel bursco and cockerham the premonstratensian abbey at cockersand the houses of dominican franciscan and austin friars at lancaster preston and warrington respectively to most of which he makes reference in his record and of most of which we have remains even to-day were to him living institutions which were lapsing before his very eyes for every one of these houses even to the tiny cell at kensall were sold or let or destroyed or sequestered either before his visit or immediately after in a number of cases the monks were withdrawn by the parent foundation in anticipation of disaster only the college of manchester the fellows of which were under no vow and the chantries were left unmolested and these were in their turn dissolved in the reign of edward the sixth one of edward the sixth's chaplains a certain john bradford a native of manchester was among those specially appointed to preach the new doctrines and recommend the reformation in lancashire he was also one of the first to be sacrificed in the marian persecution on the day of mary's coronation he saved a roman catholic priest from the fury of a london mob ah bradford exclaimed a spectator thou savest one who will help to burn thee he was arrested in the same year and after lingering for some time in confinement was burned at smithfield he was not however the first of the lancashire martyrs some months earlier the faggots had been piled round a certain george marsh at chester and he was burned to death there for teaching protestant doctrines and refusing to compromise marsh had been a small farmer at smithills north-west of bolton where stands the beautiful smithills hall the successor of buildings dating back to the seventh century he had taken orders and protested against the religious changes in mary's reign i visited smithills hall in the red glory of an afternoon in mid-january when the park drives white with snow stood out in contrast to the dark green sward and the black masses of the leafless trees as i was leaving the hall after being courteously allowed to see it i was asked have you seen the footprint i had not even heard of it 
i was then taken to the lobby that unites two wings of the house a grating was lifted from the floor and stamped on the stone beneath it in a dark red colour i saw the impress of a human foot when washed the impression came out quite clearly this according to one of the really interesting lancashire legends they're not all interesting is the mark made when george marsh charged by justice barton the then owner of smithills hall with heretical opinions stamped upon the floor and emphatically denied the imputation we will not try indeed it would not be easy to explain away this famous story rather let us picture the brave old lancashire yeoman cleric with his here stand i i can none other were there as many devils in chester as roof tiles i would on for it was in the lady chapel of chester cathedral that he finally faced his diet of worms to complete the trio of lancashire martyrs we must for the moment pass nearly a century beyond leland's time our third martyr comes from another beautiful lancashire home barlow hall in the southern district of manchester educated abroad as a missionary priest and sent back to convert his native county father ambrose as he was called was as zealous an advocate of the roman catholic position as bradford and marsh of the opposing doctrines it was on an easter day that he was arrested by a clergyman who as a substitute for his sermon let out his congregation for the purpose and in september sixteen forty one he was executed at lancaster End of chapter 5